Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and a retired Air Force Colonel. This month, I am thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with Medal of Honor recipient, Specialist 5th Class, Jim McLuhan. A combat medic, McLuhan earned the medal during the spring of 1969 in Vietnam when, during 48 hours of close combat fighting, he completely disregarded his own safety to administer medical care to numerous comrades when his company came under attack by enemy forces. Following his military service, Mr. McLuhan earned a Master of Arts in Counseling and Psychology from Western Michigan University. He returned to his passion of teaching and coaching in the Michigan public school system where he spent 40 years molding young minds. Today, it is my tremendous honor to welcome Medal of Honor recipient Jim McLuhan to the Mission Inspire podcast. So, Mr. McLuhan, your story, like so many recipients, is one of deep devotion and sacrifice to your fellow soldiers, despite it not being entirely up to you. So, can you tell us a little bit what it felt like when you were drafted to go to fight in Vietnam right out of high school? No, I was right out of college. As a matter of fact, oh, right out of, uh, that's right. That's right. You had. I'm, I apologize. Yeah. That's how you got. Sorry, I'll, I won't. I won't do the spoiler alert. That's right. Go ahead. No, that's all right. Uh, I had uh, signed a contract um, in May of 1968 with South Haven High School to teach and coach two sports. Uh, then in June, after I graduated on the fourth of June, in the middle of June, I got a letter from an uncle of mine. I'm sure you've heard of him, Uncle Sam. And Uncle Sam said he'd like to give me a physical in July. And I, I really, at that time, I kind of figured yeah, they're, they're just seeing who's healthy and who's not healthy. And so, but I knew I'd pass the exam because I just got off of my second straight uh, conference uh, wrestling championship for Olivet College. And um, I did, I passed it. And so I said to lady, what now? She says, don't you understand? You're getting drafted. So. I raised my hand then the next month, August 29th, 1968, and um, my whole life uh, changed uh, instantly. I, I watched an interview you did, and you talked about when you found out, because it was, first of all, you got combat medic, which which draftees typically, typically didn't get, but then when you right. were sent to Vietnam, I there was a really, really powerful emotional moment. I apologize if we're taking you there uh, right now that you didn't expect to. But you talked about when you went into a field after you found out you were going to Vietnam. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Because it was really impactful for me. And I was hoping you could share that with our listeners, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I'm able to uh, carefully bring those things out of my subconscious. Now, I, I didn't talk about my military experience for years and years. And that was good that I was very busy as a coach and a teacher because it helped me to put that in a, a compartment. Mm -hmm. But. Going through the combat medic training, I, I thought, these people, they don't even have to make out a new lesson plan every day. They teach the same thing. And I had, a, of course, an educational degree. Hey, this is a great opportunity. Maybe I can get a job here. So I interviewed up all the way up to a general, and, and I had it. He, he said, you're perfect for here. So we were standing in line. They went over everyone, which is a long list of men and where they were going. And they said, Jim McLuhan, Southeast Asia, Vietnam. And I thought it must be wrong. They've got to be wrong because I'm staying here. Well, I went up to the gentleman who was in charge of the list. And he had been the, the, um, the commander of our, our company there. And um, he said he, he even looked very 
<laughs> upset when I asked him if he'd made a mistake, but he knew. And he said, I I'm sorry, someone else, I, me being a draftee, I got bumped by a regular army. And uh, so he was going to get the job and I was going to Vietnam. And I was just shocked because here, you know, okay, I went from being a potential teacher and coach to an army soldier. And, but then I was going to stay, you know, and be a teacher anyway. And all of a sudden, no, um, I thought I had my attitude changed and I did, but that particular moment changed it back again to like, hmm, maybe I'll never be a teacher. Maybe, maybe I'll die in Vietnam. So I went off um, in isolation. I really don't know how long I was out there, but uh, actually crying out there. And, um, but I said, Jim, you got to get a hold of yourself because now uh, this is serious and you better get your attitude towards uh, Vietnam. But of course, at that time, I had no idea what I was going to going to see, smell and face in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a really powerful moment. when We talk about the changes that life brings oh, yeah. and you talk and we'll get into this a little bit later. But you also talk about the discipline and the ability to focus amidst the chaos that you really got from from wrestling and from football. But we're going to tie that all together. But can we fast forward to the day when you earned the Medal of Honor? So now we're at May 1969, you're a combat medic in Vietnam, not teaching as you thought you were going to be, and you're about halfway through the war. So can you tell us about that day? I think it was about 48 hours You were when what was going through your mind during those 48 hours. Well, um, first of all, the day before, our company commander had been called into the battalion commander's area and told that we were going to go on this mission. And our commander said, I think this is a flawed mission. Mm -hmm. And the battalion commander, of course, <laughs> uh, didn't like that, I'm sure, and said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you haven't set any forward observation in there, so we don't know how many people are in there and, and what kinds of uh, weaponry they have. And, and the battalion commander just flat out told him, well, you're going to take your men in there or you're going to be uh, court-martialed. I am so thankful that our... Our company commander, Ernie Carrier, said that he'd take us in because if he hadn't, he would have been court-martialed and they would have sent us in anyway. And he, he was on his second tour there, so he had a little bit of war experience and he was able to bring in uh, the kind of support we needed to survive that battle, that 48-hour battle. We were combat assaulted into the area. Uh, it was a what they call a, a hot LZ where, where the choppers were being fired upon. So we were forced to jump from about 10 feet in the air with our full packs and our weapons and our ammunition and that. And so we had a few injured right away and I was off to work, had two helicopters shot down. One of them, they got rescued right away. But the second one, Every time they try to bring somebody in, they were getting shot at. So we sent a squad out to bring them in. And that's when my first um, rescue uh, occurred. One of the men was limping in and then he fell down and he was probably 100 yards from our perimeter. And there was a platoon of NVA coming on online at him. So I just jumped up. Uh, swerved, ran out, slid in next to him like I sliding into second base and um, asked him where he was hit. And he said, I wasn't hit. I got hurt jumping out of a helicopter and his knee was 
really ballooned up. I said, well, hang on to that weapon because you're going up on my shoulders and we're going to try to get in. And I weaved and the bullets were skipping off the ground and we both both made it made it in and he went home actually before the war uh, battle started for him. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, he passed away in 2019 of, of cancer. I did oh. find him at about 40 some years afterwards, but that's how it, it uh, the day started. And, and then it got real calm until nighttime when my platoon went out and was of course ambushed. And um, that's when I had some idea of how many people we were up against. When we were first attacked, I was behind that that unit, that squad, mm-hmm. and in a trench line that the, that the French had left there. And I looked up over the berm towards Nuyan Hill, about three quarters of a mile away, but I had a clear shot at it. And they looked like ants or lava flowing down off of that hill. So wow. I knew there was a lot there. Of course, we found out later on 2000 NBA and 700 BC against 89 of us oh my gosh wow yeah what it was not a good it was not a good um game uh, so to speak yeah well so you know well so first of all first off as an air force pilot uh, we always try to stay in the plane so i can understand having to jump out from a significant height out of a moving uh vehicle so no no Mm -hmm. wonder somebody you know knees ballooning up and things like that but you sustained some injuries as well, and you're still saving these lives and sliding into people using baseball analogies for a football and wrestling guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what keeps you going when you're exhausted and you're in a new land and you know you're outnumbered? What what keeps you going? What kept you going during especially that 48 hours with the whole tour over there? Well, I, I think you're aware of um, Pavlov's uh, <laughs> pyramid of needs. And when mm-hmm. you get to that last one called survival, um, I didn't, I didn't have anything to eat or drink, uh, for, for that 48 hours. Well, of course, with, with the pyramid, you don't think about that. Um, of course I had, I'd been through that as a wrestler, not eating or drinking and, um, or eating very little and drinking very little. So you don't pay any attention to that. You don't pay any attention to the, the uh, hunger pains or whatever. I had my hands full, uh, especially second day. I was the only medic left, so mm-hmm. I probably worked on, along with going into the kill zone 10 times to save uh, 10 Americans and one Vietnamese interpreter. I worked on anywhere from my, I have estimated 40 to 50 people in that 48 hours, so you're, you're busy. Um, a fear uh, of some sort is going through, but um, that was kind of diminished a little bit. Uh, in a story I'll tell you probably later on about okay. the biggest lesson that I've ever learned uh, in, in Vietnam. Okay. Awesome. But okay, yeah, wait. that, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. I, which, you know, you equate that to like, I know wrestlers have to cut weight and all those things. And, and just oh, yeah. that dis- again, that discipline that, that comes well, from, what do they say on the fields of friendly strife or sown seeds? And, and it's, it's kind of that uh, mentality. Yeah. And, and the discipline, you know, you know, the, uh, the physical part is good, of course, but that mental discipline, that ability to focus, and as a combat medic, uh, the things that I had to focus on, uh, well, bullets are flying by, um, you have to really focus right. on that, uh, or else you're going to lose somebody. Um, yeah, uh, and and you get that feeling, well, I'm out here, <laughs> I might as well do it right, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
I no, want to be the kid. That's amazing. And and of course, these are the, the actions that you took and the lives that you saved and the people that you worked on that um, earned you the Medal of Honor. And you had your White House ceremony in 2017. So finding out, because I think this was an award that was upgraded. Someone in 2009, one of your former commanders had, had got a hold of you and upgraded a previous award to the Medal of Honor. Is that correct? Yeah, the correct thing is that um, four months after the battle, that, that lieutenant came to me and he said, Doc, um, I put you in for the Distinguished Service Cross. Um, and it didn't make much sense to me because I really didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. I do now. But he said, um, one of my superior officers said, you're nothing but a PFC and they don't get that. So give him the Bronze Star. And I looked at that lieutenant and I said, sir, I am not here to earn any medals or put any ribbons on my chest and uniform. Uh, I just would like to survive this this year and get home and be a coach, a teacher, and a father. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, then in exactly 40 years later, um, 2009, he decided to go back and upgrade to his original Distinguished Service Cross. I'll make this short. It's a long story, but it took him six years, four months to get it in the Army Board of Decorations and Awards. And then a year later, it was uh, uh, to the Pentagon. And then we get a call eight, eight years into the process. We finally get a call from the president. Well, actually, let's back up a few months. Uh, the case got across the desk of Ashton Carter, who passed away just last year. Right. Ashton Carter uh, said, no, the Distinguished Service Cross is not high enough. So he's the one that said it should go in for the Medal of Honor. Oh, okay. Uh, now that must be given within five months or five years, excuse me, of the uh, action. It had been 48 years, right. 47 years when he got it on his desk. It had been 47 years. And so they had Debbie Stabenow, who was working with a lieutenant at the time, had to write a bill to, to waive the five-year stipulation. It was passed December 2016. Got a call from Trump May uh, received the Medal of Honor in July. Wow, there, there's a, there's a and, nice lesson about persistence right there. I love that. And, yeah, that and and let me tell you, that's not that's not a Jim McLuhan Medal of Honor. That's a Charlie Tigers Medal of Honor. It's uh, it belongs to 89 men. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. Yep. I, I had my job. They. That. In their, in their memory, in their honor. I love that. Oh, yes, yes. So were you with Cherie when you got the call from the president? Or is it that you have like call, caller ID that says the president it, of the United States is calling? It, or how does that happen? Oh, you're going to love this one. So we knew that we were getting a call on May the 30th, the day after um, Memorial Day, because mm -hmm. we had been alerted the week before. So I've got, I knew they were going to call on a landline because that call that we got the week before I was on the landline. So I had landline in one hand and I had my um, cell phone in the other hand. And as soon as they said they would call at 3.30, when that cell phone changed from 3.29 to 3.30, exactly that landline rang. Wow. And it was a captain out of the Pentagon. And, and I asked her if my wife, Sheree, could listen in on our conversation. She said, yes, sir, she may. So Cherie clicked in on another landline sitting across from me at our, our uh, table, kitchen table. And she said, sir, 
I have the president of the United States on the other line for you. So we kind of failed, almost fell through our seats and <laughs> talked with him for about 20 minutes, about 15 minutes into it. And he had gotten a little, little bit of who I am. I'll, I'll preface it with what I'm going to say next, because he asked me the question, are we still in good health? And I said, you want to go a couple rounds? And Cherie looked at me like I, she wanted to hit me with, with a hammer over the head. But anyway, he chuckled. So uh, we, we knew he, he, he got the joke. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. You heard it here first. The first guy to challenge a sitting president yeah. to a couple rounds. I love that. Yeah, I love come that. on, man. I know you're bigger than me, but I think I can handle it. <laughs> well, I, I love that. So... <laughs> You have, I don't know, has your book come out yet? When, when are we going to get your book? Oh boy, you are the, I don't know, umpteenth person to ask me this. Uh, I'm, I'm actually living it and, and yeah. I, there's so much that I could cover, you know, because of after the, the war, I, I had such a blessed career, was blessed more than I deserved is the way I always put it. And um, so there's so many things I want to intertwine in there yeah. and um so it'll probably be volume one, volume two, volume That's three. okay. All, wor all yeah. worth the read. So you kind of touched on this too. So before your tour in Vietnam, you were on a path to be a teacher and a coach. Mm -hmm. um, and then you came back from the war and you continued pursuing that passion. You got your master's in counseling and psychology. Is that correct? From, uh, uh, counseling and personnel, which is a psychology field. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then you... So you taught that for 40 years. And then for most of that time, you were also the football and baseball coach. And you got into the Michigan High School Football Coaches Association Hall of Fame in 2008, mm -hmm. right? 2008. Okay, what, what kind of medal do you get for dealing with teenagers for 40 years? Oh, they're a joy, really. You know, <laughs> I, I think they get the bad rap. You, you, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil and and they put so much emphasis. I wish they quit showing these uh, school shootings and that because it only enhances that to happen again. But there, I'm completely convinced that we have the leadership out there and these young people that are coming up through. It, it's a thrill. It keeps you young. It really does. It keeps you young. And, and there's a lot of challenges to it. Um, but um, one of my missions when I came back from Vietnam was to prepare young people for their Vietnam. Mm. Their, their Vietnam might be their parents getting divorced, uh, maybe a college not accepting them, a girl uh, finally saying, hey, I don't love you anymore, a house burning down or downsizing their job or whatever. I don't know what their Vietnam was going to be, but somebody had prepared me for my Vietnam. And now it was my, uh, the torch had been passed to me to prepare these young people for their Vietnam. That and, is fantastic. Oh, so what are some of the lessons that you got from your actual Vietnam that you bring back to your students? Well, number one is you're not put on this great earth to serve yourself. You're put on this great earth to serve others. And I, I think I can best describe um, uh, my feelings about um, having to go to war. Uh, people ask me the question, would you do it again? And I look at them and I say, well, nobody gets up in the morning and says, well, I sure hope there's a war I can go to today, you know. But had I, I tell them, had I never gone to Vietnam, I would have missed the opportunity to meet the most amazing people I've ever met. People who would give up their life for your life. People who are compassionate, kind, brave, 
you know, courageous and loving. And, and, and um, in my story that I will tell you later on, no, make sure you remind me to tell you the best okay. lesson I learned in Vietnam. Love becomes a very important word. And so I think what I brought back was, you know, um, it doesn't matter whether you're in civilian life or back to the mission again of, of their Vietnam. Um, you know, you're always going to be in a community of people. Um, one of our main pillars in our character development program in this Medal of Honor Society is citizenship. Well, you're always a part of a group. Yep. And so maybe you're not at war, but in, in a lot of instances, if you think back to your growing up, it is kind of like a war because you're kind of navigating yourself through, you know, maturity to maturity and and to be the best person that you can be make sure you just do your part in that citizenship, in that group, whether it be the classroom, the, the team, the, the family, the church, the community, what the state, whatever it is. Um, right. So I think I brought that lesson that, that it is so important that we're not the most important person, but we are an important person and need to do our part. And the first day when that lieutenant told me to get on a helicopter because I had been wounded earlier in the evening, I looked at him and I told him I, I wouldn't go. I wasn't going to get on. And he said, why? And I only told him real bluntly, you're going to need me because I had looked on that hill and I knew how many I thought I had just spent my last day on earth by telling him that. But I'd rather be dead in a rice paddy than alive in a hospital mm -hmm. and find out that one of my men uh, did did not survive the next day because I wasn't there to do my job. And and I was the only one there the right. next day to do that job. And so the same thing, you can carry that over into civilian life. And um, a real quick story about a young man that I inherited, they told me, that he'd be one of the best backs I'd ever see. And, and I got him. I finally got him. And the first day that we could scrimmage and practice, he got the ball and he ran 25 yards and nobody touching him, you know. And wow. he's, patting, he's patting himself on the back. And um, then he ran 45 yards later on. And we were doing a quick whistle, get him back in there. And then, then 65 yards and he's still patting himself on the back. So I told the line, they got into the huddle first. Well, he's making his way back. And I said, don't block for him the next time. They looked at me and I said, you heard what I said. So they didn't block for him. And he got hit in the backfield about four yards. And he starts complaining about the line. I said, well, wait a minute. He, all of this time, you're at 25 yards, 45 yards, 65 yards. And you thought it was all you. Who do you think made the hole for you to get through there and run that nice. 25, 45 and 65 yards? So, yeah, I knew that. Um, yeah, some people are going to be in the headlines, but the people that are around them are the ones that put them in the headlines. So, oh, I, what I, a what I, a great lesson for everybody! Wow, that's yeah. really powerful. It, well, and and you kind of touched on this too. I think we have a society that's very um, me centric, uh, and mm -hmm. we don't acknowledge the people who are blocking for us until the coach says stop blocking. Oh, mm -hmm. wow, what a powerful moment for everybody! Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm in numerous, uh, quite a few halls of fame, but it's not me that's going into those halls of fame. It's 
all of my assistant coaches and the players that I coached and, and the people who built my character and your character as we grew up. So see, that's kind of like what, why my mission became what it was because I remember who helped me go through my war of growing up and you could probably can remember those people too. So I'll tell you, well, they'll be in that um, le- that big lesson later on. I'm building up to that lesson. Yeah, now. you are. I, I kind of want to hear it now. You want to tell it now or should we wait? No, we better wait. Okay, Don't okay, forget it. Right. That's, this is the teaser. Okay, I got it. Well, you, you, you talked about um, citizenship, but we got courage and sacrifice, patriotism, citizenship, integrity, and commitment, those values um, of the mm-hmm. Medal of Honor. And part of the reason that we're building up for this National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation with the museum in Arlington and then the monument that's going to be in the National Capital Region is so that other generations like your students and all your players and all the people that have come before us and are going to go along after us um, so they can learn how to employ those values, like you called it, in their whatever their Vietnam is. So mm-hmm. why is it important to, to pass on those values? Well, first of all, I tell people, I've, you know, I've only been uh, in the society now for going on six years, mm-hmm. uh, having get, gotten it later on in life. But I tell them I, I was teaching those values in, in my classroom and on, on the, the uh, sports uh, teams that I coached uh, before I ever be, got the Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's an instinctive thing for people who care about um others instead of caring about just just themselves i think you have to care about yourself too sure. otherwise you can't help others right you know? and and um but there there's such important things to navigate yourself through life you know we thought that that we thought that that growing up was quite a war when we get to adulthood we find out there's a few battles out there too so <laughs> every day it's a, it's a it's a lifelong what they call it you're a lifelong learner and those particular um, pillars that we call them in, in our Medal of Honor uh, um, Citizen Development Program are tools that you can use when you face something. Um, and and if I tell kids, you know, and I give them a, a perspective of what each one of those are in their life right now. Uh, for instance, courage, you know, stick up to a bully or some or a guy that's or a girl that's bullying somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, believe, believe in what you believe in, have the courage to do that and carry through with it. So um, and, and later on in life, they'll find some other reason for that particular pillar to come in. And, and then it becomes kind of like turning the light on and off. You know, right. you go out of the room, you turn it off. It becomes automatic for them. And that's, that's the important thing right there. There's two things I, I add to that when I'm speaking with, with um, certain groups. There's two things for the ingredients to success. Number one is your habits. And number two is what you think. I called it in psychology, self-talk. The way we talk to ourselves, these criminals or people in the school shootings, They've thought in the wrong direction for a long time, and then it comes out in their actions. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes your thought process so important. We talk, you and I talk at 125 words a minute. We think at 525 words a wow. minute. Okay. And as you and I are talking, you and I 
are thinking at anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 words per minute because you're thinking about what you're going to ask me next or, or piggyback off of and how it, uh, how it applies to you and so on and so forth. So what you think at those 525 words a minute. I had an incident that happened, if you would like me to share it. Of course I do. So I, I was asked to speak at this middle school. And um, I was supposed to speak to the 8th, 7th, and 6th graders all at once. But when I got there, the principal said, hey, we're, we don't have school this afternoon. So we're rotating our classes. Can you do that three times? So I had a five-minute song, 45-minute speech, in a 15 minute question and answer period. Okay. So I'd done that with the eighth, seventh, and I was at the sixth graders and all the students as they came in with their classes sat on the floor and I was presenting to them and then went to the Q and A and a lady in the back with a sixth grader the class, I, I assume she was a teacher or an administrator said, we have time for one more question. And a little girl popped up off to my right innocent as she could possibly be she asked me this question have you ever killed anyone hmm. and how did it make you feel a wow. sixth grader usually just ask you have you done something okay right. and i had never been asked that question never wow. so 525 year words were rushing through my head Sure. And in about 20 seconds, I had said to myself, Jim, you got to tell her the truth. You got to tell her so she'll understand, but leave her on a positive note. And I don't know why she asked it. Maybe she had a grandpa that had been in the war. Maybe she had a father in Afghanistan. Maybe she was just curious about war or whatever. But here's what I said to her. I said, honey, that's the worst thing about war. Sometimes you have to take somebody else's life so that they won't take yours. But I've never been proud of it. As a matter of fact, it will bother me my entire life that I had to take somebody's son, somebody's father, somebody's husband, somebody's brother, somebody's uncle, somebody's friend. But you know what? I was a combat medic. And sometimes we would injure the enemy and I'd get to patch him up. So I told her the truth. I told her hope. So I hope she would understand. But I left her on that positive note wow. that I also was compassionate enough to um, to do what I could do as a medic after a man had been wounded. Because really, they're doing what their government's asking them to do. Right. And I, I'm doing what my government's asking me to do. But it's, I mean, in the moment, like I just said, you do it. To keep from being killed yourself right but how did she after, uh, how did she respond to that oh she well, was the end of the the presentation and she she looked as if she had gotten an answer so wow. hopefully that's that's true so i have a question and this is purely for curiosity so when you prepare to go speak and you know like did that ever come like when you kind of do your your, your practice sessions or rehearse kind of what you're going to say do you ever had you ever anticipated that question? I'm I'm actually just surprised that a that a young sixth grader would, and that was the first time that somebody had asked you that. Did you ever mm -hmm. kind of predict that question and and think about how you would answer it if you had been asked it? Well, first of all, um, I was blessed in having been a teacher for forty yeah. years, so I've been in classroom 
five hours a day with 30 to 40 new students uh, each hour on the hour yeah. for uh, 76 semesters or whatever it was wow. in the 38 <laughs> years. So I had been last, but, but there it was, you know, so, so I think just like anything else, when I was present, when you're presented with something that, um, that kind of sets you up or, or makes you think 525 words a minute, right. You've been through the process and, and yeah, I think, I think that's where God kind of steps in and, and helps out a little. I do believe in the Holy spirit that he's, sure. And, and I'll add that to my uh, most important lesson that I learned. <laughs> All of these things tie into that most important lesson. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear the most important lesson then. Let's, let's go. Okay. <laughs> the, the second day of the battle on about my seventh trip out of the 10 that I took into the um, wow. kill zone, I heard somebody yell, medic. And so I rushed to where the sound was into the kill zone. And there was a man with a, a wound to his stomach. So organs had started to appear and I got them. I knew that I couldn't move him. So I'm a sitting, sitting duck that was, I was wounded for my second time. Then I got wounded three times in the two days, uh, twice the second day. But th this time I got wounded with a AK-47 to the right arm, which I stitched up myself later on. But anyway, oh my gosh. I'm working on him and, and, and I knew I had to, here we are on the focus part, okay? I had to focus on this. I had to get the pressure bandages on. Then I took my water, and this is what I did with my water other than without drinking. I used it on this particular uh, patient with uh, to, to wet down the, the, um, the pressure bandages because if I didn't, then the, the in, internal organs will dry up. Right. Got it all done pulled him into the trench line nearby that the trench that the French had left. And I'm trying to figure out how am I going to carry this guy? I can't throw him over my shoulders like I do everybody else. How am I going to carry him through the kill zone and neither one of us get hit? So I finally had decided that I would cradle him like a baby and even put the pressure bandages against my chest to hold them on tighter and get as low as I could. And this was one time it was good I was short, but I, I could get low and, and go through. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a thought came over me. It had been since I was a little boy that I had told my father that I loved him. Fathers didn't do that with sons. Mm -hmm. Sons didn't do that with sons. I'm sure my dad loved me because he did things that showed love. And I assumed he knew that I loved him too. But I had a conversation with my Lord. And I said, Lord, if you get me out of this hell on earth so I can look my father in the face just one more time and tell him that I love him, I'll be the best coach, best teacher, and the best dad that I can be. And this incredible peace came over me. I don't think we're puppets on a string where Jim McLuhan can be saved and this guy over here can be killed. Uh, God doesn't want that to happen. But that spirit that I, that I had heard about for so many years, that Holy Spirit kind of really gave me some adrenaline to, to be more focused. And so I ran to my dad in the O'Hare airport and 
through my arms uh, um, around him and um, told him that I loved him. And he did the same back at me like we'd been doing that for 24 years of my life so far. And so it was our greeting and our departure from then on. And um, I taught my children, my grandchildren, my athletes, my students, the 72 assistant coaches that I had over the years, that those three words are the most powerful words and the most needed words. And all of those things that I, you can see them coming together that I said, they all apply to this lesson. Yeah. And so what I generally do when I tell this story and, um, is that I give an assignment and I say, you don't think you're going to get out of here without an assignment from an ex teacher and a coach, do you? There must be somebody, Mo, that just lately, you know, you've been maybe too busy. You didn't do it on purpose, but you've neglected saying those three words to. So your assignment is to whichever way you choose. If you can see the person in person, I suggest you do that but otherwise you got all these other avenues you know that you can do to tell them that you love them but there's a second part to the assignment don't only tell them that you love them tell them why Mm. you love them they may know but it as as uh i have said before it's always better coming from the mouth of the person that uh, and, and to, I guess, verify that this person really does care for you in their life. Wow. So that's the most uh, powerful thing that I, I've learned in, uh, in, in, that, uh, wow. in that year. Yeah, yeah. that's a listen, if, if, if you're not crying, I don't know what's wrong with you, but <laughs> I'm over here hoping <laughs> that someone's going to edit out all my tears. But yeah, that. <laughs> Yeah, assignment uh, received, and I will I will get to work on that, and I will report back definitely, Coach. <laughs> well, that's a that's a lesson that uh, you know we all learn sooner or later. Yep. You, you know, I, I don't think males are the only ones that that feel this way sometimes, but we, you know, don't want to show that we're we're moved on something, and that's another thing that I've said to to grown men and to boys. It's okay to cry yep. if you have something to to cry about. It can be good tears. Yep. It can be it can be hurtful tears, but I'll tell you what: if they're hurtful tears, you're going to be a stronger person after you experience what caused those hurtful tears. You will become a stronger person after those tears. Yep. 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 After you've right experienced the other side of those, right? Yeah. I got a one-liner. You know, I I, I went from coaching wrestling to te- uh, to officiating because as you've heard I was coaching year-round coaching even in the summer so year-round and I needed a break from coaching and I figured wow you know if I'm official I'm I got the best seat in the crowd you know I'm right (laughs) out out there but I I, um and of course you want to get a state state final as an official okay and it in the 25 years I did get a state final I got 18 state finals as an official and the one-liner, see, I didn't talk about my my war experience as I went through my profession. As a matter of fact, my son got a call. He's a lieutenant detective of Michigan State Police. Oh, wow. He got a call the evening of the day that I received the Medal of Honor. 
and it was a sergeant detective. He said, Jamie, I saw your dad get the Medal of Honor on TV today. When did you first hear this story? And he said, today, the same time you did. So wow. unable to talk about those, those experiences um, have hampered a little bit. Uh, I'm still very guarded on what I tell you and what I don't tell you. Mm. I would have never told you that story about the man in the rice paddy had I not um, received the Medal of Honor. So mm. that's, uh, that's something that you, you just kind of cautiously, you know, tread through the, the rice paddy, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you you had just I I really admire your perspective and your willingness to share that and to be vulnerable. I mean, that's uh, again, like you said, especially for for men in our society, we have put this this false, I don't know what it's called on on being guarded and strong and and somehow thinking that crying is is a sign of weakness when it's quite mm. the opposite. So yeah, thank you so much for your vulnerability. And so I I just I'm glad you shared all those lessons and um and everyone's got their homework assignment. Um, it's the two yeah. of them to to tell someone that you love them and to tell them why. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for the time that you spent with us. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to meet Cherie before we started the call, too. So it was good <laughs> to see her. Because honestly, your your selflessness and your vulnerability is inspiring for, for definitely for me. And again, if you're not crying, you're not listening, go back and listen and stop thinking at 500 words a minute and make sure you're listening um, mm -hmm. as fast as we're talking. And I just want to ask one thing. One, one thing that we ask all the recipients when we have these courage conversations is, is there another recipient's story that inspires you? Well, first of all, I want to tell you how humbling it is to become a member of uh, this group of men. Mm. They all have incredible stories. And, you know, every time you hear one, um, you say, wow, did that really happen? You see, the, one of two of the reasons I didn't share my service time um, number one was that I didn't want to go there in my thoughts, even number two, uh, you wouldn't believe me if I told you anyway. So, so why should I, I tell you? And, and one of the things that I think I might share with you that, that the rest of the men would too. Um, and, and that is that, um, what we did just happened in our life. It, it isn't any more courageous than some things that maybe you're going to face too. And so it, it doesn't make us better than you. It just makes us uh, a part of a group of men that is coming out. And you know, there's a lot of people that sh should be getting that medal of honor, but you need two eyewitnesses and the right things there. that they did, they didn't have two eyewitnesses, but they did something just as brave as you and I, and I know that I've heard many of the Medal of Honor recipients say that, and they say what I say too, it's not my medal. It's yep. the people that I fought with. Yep. And the people that died in, in all of the wars, the, even the people that we didn't know or ne never got the chance to meet, meet because they were in a civil war or World War One or what World War II. Right. But um, yeah, that it's a very humbling thing uh, to be con considered uh, for that, first of all, and then to actually receive it. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I was a million and one things were going through my mind as I stood up there and listened. And, you know, I heard that 
the citation for the first time also as my son was listening oh, to really? the story. Oh yeah, I, I don't write up the citation. Of course. No, they, no, I knew you didn't. They just, take I'm the eyewitness letters and, and write it up. So, and, and actually Trump, Trump covered it pretty good. He didn't, uh, <laughs> he didn't go away from the script too yeah. much because <laughs> I could yeah. see what he, he was doing. He did reading. a good job. Yeah. I, I, watched, I watched the ceremony. He did a good job. <laughs> you know why? So, he was afraid you were going to take him, you were going to take him up for a couple rounds. That's why. Oh yeah. Yeah. I bet you that that's why, that's why I was standing at attention. I was giving him <laughs> the opportunity to, to throw the first punch. <laughs> You know, I'll share with you, I, I have never been in a fight in my life as physical of a person as I am. And, you know, 11 varsity letters in high school and seven varsity letters in college. But uh, you can't count your brothers. I can say okay. that I have been in a fight with, with your siblings. OK, you got you can't get take you got to take them out of that particular. <laughs> yeah, that's just part of the curriculum. My, uh, my brother right. used to sit on me until my dad came in and, 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 yeah. and broke us up. So I get it. <laughs> yeah. And I've always figured that if, if we can't talk out, uh, can, uh, you know, just dis, uh, discuss something and and walk away before we fought, then we just better walk away and come back at it later on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mr. McLuhan, Jim, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. And I want to tell you that I love you and I love you because you're so <laughs> honest and vulnerable with that young sixth grader who had the courage to ask you that question. So yes. And, um, and also uh, to those that are, are listening, it doesn't have to be just one person. If there's several people that yep. you, uh, you can do that and uh, make a list and take a few each day, but I that kind it. of, yeah, that kind of puts us on Old and I, and of course, I still don't say it enough. So, yeah, yep. no, I love it. You, you yep. have your marching orders, everyone. For folks who want to learn more about the Medal of Honor Museum, just type in mohmuseum.org. That's mohmuseum.org. You can get the latest updates and find out how you can help its mission to inspire America. That's it for us today. Please join us next time on the Mission Inspired Podcast. 